Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gracious God you are. Your spirit brings us to conviction and your kindness leads us to repentance. There is no other God like you, so eager to redeem, patient with us, and full of unfailing love. We confess binging on fear and worry rather than feasting on grace and feeding our faith. We confess being quicker to judge and label others than to see and grieve our own sin. We confess hoarding our brokenness and weakness rather than letting friends enter our pain, struggles, and foolishness. We confess caring more about our image and reputation than your name and glory. We confess being quicker with irritation than forbearance, slower to pray than to scheme, and better at running to self-pity than running to you. We confess gospel amnesia, but photographic memories when it comes to the ways people have hurt and disappoint us. We confess not thinking about heaven enough and about money too much. Have mercy on us, Father. Have mercy on me. If you dealt with us according to our sins, we could not stand. If you repaid us for all our transgressions, we would be in debt forever. But our hope is sure, for it is built on nothing less, more, or other than the riches of the gospel. As you've forgiven us and declared us righteous in Christ, so make us more and more like Jesus. So very amen we pray in his merciful and mighty name. Maybe you need this reminder today because if you're like me, I don't know what month it is anymore. It's May and it's Mother's Day, so make sure you call your mom and honor her. I saw someone wearing a shirt that said, love your mother. So love your mother today and give thanks for her. Maybe your mom passed away and today is difficult for you. Maybe your experience of your mother growing up was not what you wanted it to be. If so, I know a tender Savior who would love to hold your hand and listen to you pour your heart out to him. And so do that today. He is waiting He's willing to comfort your broken heart. And as his providence would have it, our big idea today on Mother's Day is this. God's womb-like, surging, maternal mercies never come to an end. God's womb-like, surging, maternal mercies never, ever come to an end. Now, we're going to unpack this as we go along, 
But the testimony of Scripture is that God's heart for His people is like that of a mother. God's heart is like a mother's heart for her children only magnified 10 billion times. And so whatever your image of God is, His Word makes it very clear that His heart surges with maternal, womb-like love for you. And it's this love and compassion that's like a new mom. Imagine a new mom holding her baby, nursing her baby, rocking her baby, and singing over her baby. That's God's heart and that's God's feelings for you today. And I hope that's how you think of him. One of my church history professors in seminary, Dr. Jeff Bingham, said, the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension in your life. And because that is true, I want us to continue to hang out and hover over 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 for a few more weeks. And so this will be more of a topical sermon today, using these verses as a launching pad. And as we saw last week, we don't have to be afraid to have good thoughts of God. We need to understand who God is and what His heart is like. And that really is the question of life, isn't it? Who is God and what is He like? Those are the questions of life. Moses asked God that question. Moses wanted to know what God was like. He wanted to see God's glory. And so Moses said that to the Lord. He said, show me your glory. Tell me what you're like. I want to know. And how did God respond? In Exodus 33, 19, And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so Moses is like, hey, Lord, show me your glory. And Yahweh is like, here you go. Mercy. God told Moses, this is what I'm like. I'm good. And I'm gracious. And I'm merciful. And then what did the Lord say to Moses as he passed by him? It's more of the same stuff. He, he put him in that cave, and the Lord passed by him. And what does Exodus 34, 6 through 7 say? The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But when did God say those words? When did he say that to Moses? Right after the Israelites made and worshipped the golden calf. Wow. You expect them to pass by and say, lightning bolts, thunder, fire, judgment. But he passes by after Israel has made and worshipped a golden calf and he says, mercy. 
It reminds us that God always meets our sin. He always meets our mess with his mercy. And so when Moses says, show me your glory, what does God say? I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm keeping steadfast love. I'm forgiving iniquity and sin and transgression. And so God's glory is his mercy. God's glory is his mercy to sinners. His glory is his grace, his steadfast love for sinners who worship golden cows and for churches that have been dazzled by super apostles and who get drunk when they take communion. And that's exactly why Paul begins his letter this way. By highlighting the Father of mercies. We're dealing with a worship a golden calf church type moment with Corinth here. And what they need is mercy. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in your Bibles. Look at verse 3 and hear the word of the merciful Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And so, how does Paul answer those questions? Who is God and what in the world is he like? What came to mind when Paul thought of God? Answer, the Father of mercies. I mean, three times, right at the very beginning of his letter, he has already mentioned God the Father. Is this your first thought of God? A father of mercies? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of God? Is it thunder and lightning bolts? Anger? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of God? Many people might be inclined to answer holy, glorious, powerful, hater of sin. Nothing wrong with those answers. God is holy, he is glorious, he is powerful, he does hate sin. But you can't go wrong by following the Apostle Paul's lead and saying, he is the father of mercies. He is a kind father who doesn't give people what they deserve. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, he is the spring of all mercy, so it is natural to him as it is to a father to beget children. So all this mercy business that we're talking about is very natural for God. This is who he is. Mercy comes natural, naturally to him. It's natural to him as much as it is for a father to have kids, a father to have children. Listen, if I were to tell you that I fathered a giraffe, you would think that I have lost my mind. Why? Because only humans can only beget humans. That's natural. I can't have giraffes as children. I have six human beings as children, not six giraffes. Humans beget humans. That's natural. And it's natural for our Heavenly Father to be merciful. It's not weird. Me fathering a giraffe, that's weird. File that under W for weird. God showing mercy, 
That's natural. That's normal for God. As we saw last week, when we come to our Heavenly Father for mercy and comfort, we're not asking Him to change. It's natural for Him. We're not asking God to be something that He isn't. We're not forcing Him to do something that He doesn't want to do. We're not asking Him to be weird and to do something unnatural. When we come to God with our sin, we're just saying, be who you are. And have mercy on us. And when we bring our sin to God, and I love this about Jesus, he does not show up with a bunch of I told you so's. Jesus doesn't drop a bunch of shame on you's on us. He doesn't meet our mess with how dare you's. He doesn't come with a bunch of why can't you? Why can't you just get your act together for once? He always meets our mess with mercy because he is the father of mercies. And we're not depleting him somehow by coming to him continually for this mercy. We can't exhaust his mercy. He's rich in mercy. He's a billionaire. In fact, his mercies are new every morning. I mean, we know this, right? Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Hebrew word that's used here for mercies is related to the Hebrew word for the womb. It's this surging maternal love. It's the love of being in love. It's love that is centered in the emotions and the heart. It's the love a mother has for her newborn as she holds him or her in her arms. So it's this surging maternal love. In fact, it's the same word that the real mother uses in 1 Kings chapter 3 when King Solomon is trying to discern who the real mother is. Remember the story where those two prostitutes are fighting over a baby? And Solomon says, then let's just cut the baby in half. You can have one piece and you can have one piece. And what does the the real mother do? The text tells us that the mom's heart, and that's the word here, that womb-like nurture, the the mom's real heart yearned for her son. And that's the word here in Lamentations for Mercy. It's this deep, surging, maternal love that comes from the bowels. That's mercy. It's the love of a mother who would do anything for her child. And that's how God feels about you, Christian. And so how about this translation for Lamentations 3.23? His womb-like, surging, maternal mercies never come to an end. They are fresh out of the oven every morning. Wow, that's a game changer when you begin to understand that. Because if you're like me, you wake up and Mr. Guilt and Mrs. Shame are waiting on you, ready to bring fresh reminders of your sin, fresh reminders of your failures. And God knows this. God knows that the devil tries to serve up fresh out of the oven condemnation first thing in the morning. He's an early riser. 
and he's an early baker. And that's why his mercies, God's mercies are fresh and new every morning. And this, it's this kind of surging maternal mercies that are new every morning for us. Fresh mercies. We wake up and we're like, oh, hey, Father, it's me again. Yeah, same old sins, same old heart. Nothing new to see here. Just me with the same old sins that I bring to you every day. Nothing has changed since yesterday. And God the Father is like, that's okay. I have new mercies for your same old sins. I have fresh, straight out of my heart mercies just for you. Enjoy. Listen, God welcomes us with deep compassion when we have binged on sin. There's no I told you so's involved at all. There's no shame on you's. There's no how dare you's. There's no why couldn't you just. The father of mercies waits for his children to wake up in the morning so that he can shower his kids with fresh mercies. No leftovers. These are fresh, they're new, they're warm for how your heart feels on Wednesday morning, not how your heart felt on Tuesday morning. New mercies every day as if they came out of an oven. Fresh out of the oven-like heart of God. Believe it, grace. Believe it with your whole heart. Drink it in. Take in deep, repeated gulps of the gospel and then let your worship of him be extravagant and then go share this good news with your neighbors and co-workers. But his heart is not just like a womb. God's heart is actually like an oven too. That's what the prophet Hosea said. Hosea 11.8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within. My compassion grows warm and tender. These are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. God's people have continually turned away from the Lord, Hosea says, and yet God's heart moves toward them with compassion, not with lightning bolts, not with whips, not with threats of terror. God moves towards his sinful, rebellious people with compassion. And so Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is revealing his heart here for his rebellious children so as to allure them to love him. His heart recoils within him, Hosea says. His heart is overthrown when his people walk away from him. When we run away from Jesus, his heart is overthrown with compassion. And he moves out in tenderness to us. Yes, he disciplines us. Hebrews 12. And we saw it in our series in 1 Kings. God disciplines us. If he did not discipline us, he would not be a loving heavenly father. He disciplines us. But his knee-jerk reaction is one of kindness, one of mercy. 
After all, what leads us to repentance? It's his kindness. The law doesn't. The whips and terrors and threats of the law, those don't change our hearts. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. And we see His kindness here in Hosea 11 because when we run away after other lovers, Yahweh's compassion grows warm and tender. I mean, think about that. The Hebrew word here for warm, the Hebrew word kamar, is actually used in the book of Lamentations of an oven heating up. It's also used when Joseph saw his brother Benjamin for the first time after all those years. His heart warmed up. So God's anger does not flare up when we sin. Rather, His compassion does. His heart heats up like an oven, not with anger, but with compassion. And this is why grace is amazing. Because we expect God's anger to heat up, to flare up, like throwing gasoline on a fire. But that's not what happens. His compassion warms up and heats up. And that amazing grace, that good news, should make you want to live for Him and to live for His glory. And that's why Paul is answering the question, who is God here at the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians? Because he wants the Corinthians to repent. He wants them to return to the Lord, to a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. Paul knows that what Charles Spurgeon said is true. Spurgeon said, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Paul wants the Corinthian church to know that God is not hard. He wants them to know that God is so kind, so good, and so overflowing with compassion so that it would warm their hearts and they would repent and break off their engagement with the super apostles who had invaded the church. And so at the very beginning of his letter, Paul is reminding the Corinthian church that he planted that God's womb-like surging maternal mercies never come to an end. And that's the heart that greets us. His merciful heart meets us at the most shameful, embarrassing moments in our lives. His merciful heart meets us at the most shameful and most embarrassing moments in our lives. That if we were to play it on a screen here for everyone to see, we would we'd all run and jump off a, the, the pier at Pismo, hoping it was shark-infested waters. And he meets us there at those most shameful places where we feel the most shame, and where we're so embarrassed that we did that, or thought that, or said that. That's where Jesus meets us with mercy his merciful heart meets us at those places where we have the deepest regrets 
and we desperately wish that we could just get a do-over. And his merciful heart meets us at our most inexcusable sins. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 30, 18, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. He waits for us to come to him so that he can shower us with his grace and mercy. And he is glorified in the process. And that's what's so awesome about all of this because we tend to hide away from God when we sin. We don't want to go around because we don't want to talk about it. And we wonder how he feels about us. But it's in returning to him and receiving his mercy that God is glorified. That's what's so awesome about all of this is that God does not reluctantly show mercy. He's not a miser with his mercy. It's not as if we are cramping his style. He is glorified, the prophet Isaiah says, by showing mercy to people like us. He is glorified when he meets us at our most embarrassing, shameful, and inexcusable places of our hearts. He's glorified to meet us there and show us his mercy. Because God just feels this mercy for us deep inside. Listen, we have given him zero reasons to be merciful to us. We have given him zero reasons to dole out his love and affection and smile upon us. And yet, he delights to do it. The gospel is simply that he just feels this mercy deep inside of himself, deep inside of his heart. And so how silly of us, how silly of me to even think that God is not merciful. This is the starting place of the Christian life, isn't it? Luke 18, 13, the starting place of the Christian life. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's the starting place, and it's the path that we walk on throughout the entire Christian life. It starts with mercy, and it's mercy all the way through. And God never runs out of mercy. Paul tells us what God is like in Ephesians 2.4 when he says, But God being rich in mercy. This is the only place in the Bible that tells us that God is rich and what he's rich in. It's mercy. But what does that mean? Dane Ortland gives an answer in his new book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I recommended this book to you last week. Get it if you haven't. Your heart will write you thank you notes, I promise. Here's what Dane Ortland says about God being rich in mercy. What does this mean? It means that God is something other than what we naturally believe him to be. It means that the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. He is a fountain of mercy. He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through life cause his fortune to grow greater, not less. The Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. God is rich in mercy, and he's a big 
spender. Think about this. How would the Corinthian church, with all of their issues, how would they hear the words in verse 3, the Father of mercies? How did verse 3 land on them? Remember their history. Some of them were getting drunk at communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were tolerating some weird incestuous relationship in the church that Paul said in 1 Corinthians, even the world doesn't do this, and you guys do this and you allow it? And there were cliques, and they began boasting in worldly wisdom, and they were welcoming these self-centered, glory-seeking, please-praise-me super-apostles. And guess what? God's mercy covered all of that. He didn't give them what they rightfully deserved. They deserved a slap in the face from God. They deserved a flick of God's knuckle on the top of their heads. What they didn't deserve was God's kindness. And neither do we. But in Christ, God doesn't come slapping their face. He doesn't come flicking them on the top of the head with his knuckle. He actually kisses them on the cheek with mercy. And God doesn't come to you, Christian, slapping you in the face or hitting you on the forehead with his knuckle. He actually kisses you on the cheek with mercy too because he's rich in mercy. He's a billionaire. He's loaded with mercy. But please understand that we should not see God the Father as if he were a vending machine and that he just dispenses mercy and comfort and grace. No, Paul is telling us who God is in his core, his very essence. That means that mercy is a person. Grace is a person. Comfort is a person. These are not just some abstract qualities that are describing God. Mercy, grace, and comfort is actually a person. Jesus, God incarnate. And so we should read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 like this. The Father who is at His very core is mercy. The God whose very heart is comfort the God and Father who delights to shower us with himself. Paul is talking about God's nature here, his essence, his personality. This is not just God's Twitter bio. He is characterized by tender-hearted compassion and gentleness and love and mercy and grace and a passionate desire to love and care for sinners. And not just sinners, God actually showers his creation with mercy. Psalm 145, 8 through 9 says, The Lord, Yahweh, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. These verses come straight out of Exodus 34, which we read earlier. The words that come right after the golden calf incident. The same words are used here. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This was discipleship 101 for a believer in the Old Testament. If you ask them, what does discipleship look like in ancient Israel? They said, this is it. It's learning anew every single day that Yahweh is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
Discipleship 101 for an Old Testament believer. This was their liturgical formula. Yahweh is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is what they catechized their children with. This is what they said. This is, this is what Yahweh is like, son. This is what our God is like, daughter. They catechized their children with this. And they told inquisitive Gentiles, people from the nations who came in to inquire, tell us what your God is like. And they said, this is what Yahweh is like. And they just repeated this liturgical formula. And really, that's missions, isn't it? Missions is just inviting and welcoming people into the mercy of God. That's all missions is. Inviting people into the mercy of God. That's what the Israelites were doing when Gentile nations would come and ask, tell us about your God. And you, just like them, when you invite your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members to church, you are participating just like those in ancient Israel You are participating in the point of all human history, which is this. Welcoming the nations into the mercy of God. That's the point. And that should be the response to God's mercy, shouldn't it? You invite the nations. You invite others. Your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students. You invite them into his mercy. You tell them that the Jesus that you worship, regardless of what they've heard on the internet or on the news or wherever, you tell them that the Jesus that you worship is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that is Discipleship 101 for a New Testament believer too. That's our liturgical formula. But the psalmist here in Psalm 145 is using this Old Testament liturgical formula coming out of Exodus 34, and now he applies it to all of creation. God has mercy and compassion on all of his creation. And so this verse here in Psalm 145 can actually change how you perceive reality. Psalm 145 changes how you view creation. Everything in creation, every person matters. Every race matters. It's sad that we have to say that in 2020, that every race in America matters. That's sad. Shooting a few months ago of that young boy in Georgia, sad that we have, that that's happening It's sad that it's not safe for African Americans in America in 2020. What is going on in our country? Don't get me started. Every person in creation matters. Every race because Psalm 145 says that God has compassion and mercy on all of his creation. Whatever your skin color is. And that means then too that even Ladybugs matter. His mercy is not too great to shine even on little old ladybugs. God does not say, I'm too big 
to care for ladybugs. I'm too big of a deal to care about that specific ladybug right there in your garden. No, his mercy shines over all creation. All of God's creation can feel the fatherly warmth of his mercy. Jesus even cares about the ladybugs that he has made. And now how much more does he care for you? His glory even shines down on ladybugs. And so we should not despise his creation. Psalm 145 and 2 Corinthians 1 can open your eyes to see that even the little ones of creation matter to God. We see this with Noah too in the book of Genesis. You know the story in Genesis 6, how God flooded the earth. And then in Genesis 9, God established a covenant with Noah and all of creation that he would never flood the earth again. And the sign of the covenant was the rainbow. The rainbow was God's sign that he would never again send a flood to wipe out all of humanity or his creation. And so the rainbow is the sign of God's mercy. Now, what's interesting about the rainbow is that the Hebrew word for rainbow, keset, is the word for a warrior's bow, like a bow and arrow. And so the rainbow, the very colorful rainbow that we see in the sky, is actually a weapon. It's a warrior's bow. And God hung his weapon up in the sky for us to see. That's what the rainbow is. It's God's warrior bow that he hung up in the sky to remind us that he's merciful. But what's so significant about that? What's so significant about the rainbow, the warrior bow being hung up in the sky? Well, in the ancient Near East, in Noah's day, when two warring parties came together with a peace treaty, they used to go home and hang their bows up on the walls to remind them, I'm no longer at war with my enemy. They would hang their weapons up on the wall to serve as this reminder that they had reached peace agreement. There's a peace treaty and they cannot take the weapon down and attack their enemy again. And so the bow, the weapon reminded them that they were at peace. And this is what God did. God hung his bow on the wall, if you will, in the clouds. To put it in our language, God put his weapon down. He hung his weapon up on the wall and gave up his right to wipe us all out. And so he will not wipe out humanity again with the flood, even though we are just as bad as the people in Noah's day. And even though we deserve it. See, that's just God showering undeserving sinners with mercy. That's God letting you live a life of rebellion and he doesn't come and strike you or me down because he's merciful and he's gracious. Now, please understand, that doesn't mean that you and I are off the hook. We're still responsible for our sin. We will give an account one day. But God didn't wipe you out this morning, even though you're a rebel, because he's merciful. He doesn't give us what we all deserve or none of us would be here. What God did was give his son what we deserve. And so God gave Jesus what you deserve. God gave Jesus what I deserve. God punished his own son on the cross so that we could escape that punishment. Notice, too, that the bow... The warrior's bow, the rainbow, where is it pointing? It's pointing up to heaven now, pointing at Jesus, telling us that Jesus would bear the penalty of our sins. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. 
It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. The rainbow is a picture of what Jesus would endure for us, how he took our blame, our sin, our guilt, and bore it on the cross. And God's wrath was poured out on his own son for our sin. The warrior's bow was turned upon Jesus for our rebellion. And so God is being merciful and not giving you what you deserve. But you will die one day, and then you will give an account of your life, just you and God, face to face. You giving an account for everything you said and did and thought and the motives that were driving all of that. The only way to be saved from his wrath and to be safe on that day is to flee to Jesus, to trust in him, to cry out, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus, because I am a sinner. If you don't repent and fess up to your rebellion and run to Jesus, then you will see him, and he will have a weapon in his hand, the warrior's bow, and because of your rebellion and your sin and your defiance, he will shoot the flaming arrows of his wrath out on you for eternity in hell. And I don't want that for anyone who's listening today. I don't want that for you. So repent and call out to Jesus right now. And just say, be merciful to me. Have mercy. Listen, he is merciful. He is kind. He will forgive you of your sins and adopt you into his family. Listen, God Put his weapon down. He's been merciful in letting you live this long. He picked up his weapon and shot the arrows of wrath on his son Jesus on the cross. But he's going to pick it up one day. And he will never stop shooting at you for eternity because of your rebellion. But if you trust in Jesus, God's warrior bow, his weapon, will never be used on you again. And if you trust in Jesus, guess what? You're going to see that warrior bow every day for all of eternity. You'll see it hanging on God's wall for all of eternity on the new earth. You'll see the warrior's bow, the rainbow for all of eternity, and it will remind you every single day just how merciful God is. It will remind you that God delights to shower sinners with his mercy. Where will you see the warrior bow for eternity? Over God's throne, over the throne of God. Listen to Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What's hovering over God's throne? It's a rainbow the warrior's bow, forever hanging up on the wall, reminding us that we are at peace with God. We will forever see the covenant sign of God's mercy. And when John says here that God has the appearance of jasper and carnelian, here's what he means. With jasper, there were several stones in the ancient times called jasper. This stone was translucent, clear as crystal. It sparkled and flashed when it was polished. And so what John means when he describes God as being like jasper, he's saying that God is infinitely glorious and holy. And when he uses carnelian to describe God, carnelian had a reddish color like fire. And so what John means when he describes God this way 
This is God's anger at man's sin. It's the righteous anger of God at our sin. And so you have God's character, which is holy and glorious. And you have this red, hot hatred of sin. And then there's the rainbow above it all. Oh, how beautiful is that rainbow over God's throne. What wonderful colors hang over God's head. The rainbow that hovers over the throne of God tells us that God is merciful and that there is peace and that the war is over. And so you have the holiness of God, you have the glory of God, you have the red-hot anger of God at man's sin, and what is all that surrounded by? Mercy. The rainbow, the symbol of mercy. I can't wait to see it with my own eyes. I can't wait every day to look up and say, the war is over. We're at peace. And so the rainbow over God's throne tells us that God's mercy overarches all of God's deeds. God's mercy overarches all that God does. The rainbow reminds and will remind us for eternity that God's womb-like, surging, maternal mercies never come to an end. We'll see the rainbow forever and his mercies will never end for eternity. They're new every morning now, though. They're new for you today. This is how God feels for you, Christian. Surging, maternal love from deep inside just what your heart needs. Receive it today and then go share it with someone. This is the great theme of the Bible, inviting the nations into the mercy of God. And so enjoy it and share it with others. Christian, his mercy meets you today at the most shameful, embarrassing moments of your life. You're forgiven His mercy meets you today at the places of deepest regret in your life. You are forgiven and you are clean. His mercy meets you at your most inexcusable sins. You are forgiven and you are clean and you are loved by God. So God the Father rejoices over you today with gladness quiets you with his love. He exults over you with loud singing. So rest. Rest in that beautiful truth. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God of mercy. Thank you for not giving us what we rightly deserve. We have loved many other things besides you, and yet your heart warms up for us. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who lived the life that we could never, ever live. We couldn't pull it off in our own strength, Lord. And thank you that he died the death that we don't want to die. And you raised him from the dead. He ascended to your right hand, and he's coming again. And we thank you that we'll see the rainbow over your throne for eternity, reminding us that you indeed are rich in mercy.
for anyone out there today, Lord, who doesn't know you, would you regenerate them now by your spirit and draw them home? And for your children, Father, who are listening and watching, may they rest today in your mercy and in your love for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.